Hey guys, we're back. We had Freddie New, who is the CEO of the Bitcoin Policy Institute here with us today. And it was a great chat because we spoke about not only his Bitcoin rabbit hole story, which was an interesting one, but also we spoke about CBDCs and the work that the Bitcoin Policy UK are doing, uh, trying to work with policymakers and the government to educate them on Bitcoin and the value that it really has in society. What else did we speak about, Joao? We had actually it was quite a nice format today where we sort of had a back and forth with a guest as well. That's true. That yeah. was cool. That was nice. That was nice because he was asking us questions. We were mm-hmm. asking him questions. It just felt like a little chat, really. And that was really nice. It's probably the first time we've, we've done something mm-hmm. like that in this way. Mm-hmm. So I hope you guys enjoy the format of this and um, give us some feedback on it. And if you like it, we'll just continue doing it that, that way as well. You know, we, we want to be led by you guys. So please give us some feedback. And without further ado, let's go down this Bitcoin rabbit hole with Freddie New. Hello and welcome back to yet another episode of Rabbit Hole Stories. Today we have the fantastic Freddie New with us. Hey Freddie, how are you? Hey Ian, thank, thank you very much for having me on. Hi Joel. Hi Freddie. How are you guys? Yeah, we're living the dream. Uh, this week's been uh, an absolute hot week. Um, and I was just saying before, wasn't I Freddie, how we just <laughs> love to complain about the weather here. But you know, it's been fantastic. <laughs> it's been long overdue. And I think it's uh, brightened everyone's uh, week this week. And I hope it continues for a little while yet. <laughs> well, about you, what do you like with the weather, Joel? What's 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 what are you saying about the hot weather this week? It's better if it's hot than it's raining, I guess. But like, we yeah. just take day by day. I'm Swiss. I try to yeah. keep it very neutral. <laughs> <laughs> Freddie, thank you for joining us uh, today. Um, we've got you on the show because we we would love to learn about how you got into Bitcoin, why you stayed, and what is it you're doing now in the Bitcoin space. So maybe we can just kick off um, with that and see where we go. Of course. Um, well, I mean, before we kick off, thank you so much for having me on the show. Uh, I've, I've listened to a bunch of your episodes. Um, I, I have quite a long drive. You know, that's part of part of my job at the moment. So I've had your. <laughs> it's 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 very strange actually seeing your faces on screen because often your your voice is playing on my car stereo. So, it's, <laughs> uh, but thank you. Um, so, how would you how would you like me to start off? Do you should I start off with sort of rough chronology of um, you know, dialing back into the past and mm-hmm. setting out how I first got interested in. Yeah, I mean, what what we find is sometimes people's Bitcoin rabbit hole story starts way before um, they actually discover Bitcoin, if that makes sense. Sometimes, you know, people's um, childhood plays a part in their journey into Bitcoin. So it's just a matter of where you think is a, a poignant uh, place to start. It could be anywhere. So it's, you it's know, wherever that's, you feel it's relevant. Nice, that's a nice jumping off point. And, and probably something we'll return to later in the chat, I reckon, mm. that um, I think some... A lot of a lot of the people I know who are into Bitcoin have some experience of you know modern, modern monetary theory or some form of economic collapse that I think has made it easier for them to understand the subject and to understand often understanding mm. money rather than understanding the tech itself. Um, but perhaps starting in a very dull place, uh, I, I actually first heard about Bitcoin during the Cypriot banking crisis in 2013, mm. um, which is uh, hopefully people won't immediately switch off. But um, if it's <laughs> <laughs> as, as a rough recap, um, I, at the time I was working in a law firm in the city, and uh, we, we were all very excited about the, uh, the tailwinds coming out of the financial crisis and the uh, the Cypriot bank bailing. So, if, if any of your listeners haven't heard about what happened, very, very briefly, um, what happened in Cyprus was that uh, effectively all depositors 
were required to contribute compulsorily uh, some, uh, some some of the money that they had kept within Cypriot banks to bailing those banks out. So in other words, you know, if you if you had a hundred grand in the bank, then a certain percentage of that would, would was diverted towards keeping that bank as a sovereign entity. So I was writing a lot about um, briefing papers for clients, basically, in, in, in my role as a lawyer in the city at the time. And I can't actually remember the first time I came across Bitcoin, but it was in that it was in that context. And I suspect it was in the in terms of it being unconfiscatable, rather unlike all of the money that had been ostensibly safe in these Cypriot banks that was was then suddenly impounded. Um, and that, you know that, that that I think planted the initial seed. Uh, and then I remembered hearing that the Winklevoss twins had bought some Bitcoin. So I thought, oh yeah, I might might read about this stuff that these these chaps are interested in. Uh, and to my shame, about a year later. When Mount Gox went down, I, I just remember thinking, oh, you know, those guys properly stepped on a rake there, didn't they? They they got completely shafted by Zuckerberg, uh, and then they put their <laughs> they put their their money into into Bitcoin, and then that slapped them in the face as well. Obviously, I was an idiot, um, but I imagine a lot of Bitcoiners have got the same kind of same kind of memory. Oh, gotcha. <laughs> um, when, when did you first? I heard about Bitcoin probably first time I heard about Bitcoin. It's one of those things. It's hard to actually pinpoint a particular mm. time because yeah. uh, when I first discovered it as, as, as a thing that I wanted to put my money into, I already uh, knew of its existence. Um, so it wasn't like a, Oh, what's this Bitcoin thing in, in 2017 when I first started to sort of scratch behind the surface a little bit i didn't really actually invest in it until 2019 though um but i think i must have heard about it i'm guessing around 2011 and i think it was um when i was working in the met police mm. as a police officer and it was it loose I, I i'm starting to remember um a, a financial crime case that i've can't remember the details about and i wasn't involved in in, in any way whatsoever it was just sort, sort of canteen banner at the time about this bitcoin scam was going on and i couldn't tell you any more about it because i wasn't really interested in it it was all above my head and um um, that's that's I think when I linked it back to 2017 when I started looking into it my first mindset of it of it was oh this thing must be for criminals because that narrative was already out there <laughs> right um, and I heard about it in this negative context um, about it being a part of this criminal investigation a few years prior um, so that's when I first heard about it I think yeah I was I was 2011 as well, and I only knew about it because I wanted to book a flight illegally, because my parents shouldn't see it on my bank account. So a friend of mine said, "Because you me- was a child trying to <laughs> yeah, buy was- a flight as well." <laughs> I was. Did you even buy it? If you were, um, this is hilarious. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I should have. <laughs> there, there was an Occupy Wall Street thing in London. I wanted to go. Living in Switzerland, I had to take a flight. Um, I could have taken a train. Actually, I didn't think that far ahead. So like silly me um 
And then I ran into two issues. One was how to book the flight because I was underage, technically speaking, like by a year. <laughs> um, except if you fly Ryanair, which I did. Technically. <laughs> which I did. <laughs> Ryanair didn't give a shit. They just sell the tickets. Um, and then the second thing was like, oh, I don't want my parents to know because like if I say I'm going to this mass protest to like show the middle fingers to the banks, uh, they're going to say no eventually. Um, and my friend was and your like... Mom worked at a bank. Yeah, that, that too. Um, so like, <laughs> there were other issues as well. <laughs> and um, but but yeah, he was like, "Hey, just bring me the the money in cash for whatever you want. We'll go to one of these Bitcoin ATMs. I'll show you how to set up." I was like, "Cool." I then um, bought a voucher or something off another bloke. Bought a ticket. Forgot about it for two years, and in 2013 needed to pay someone in South Africa. So had to use it again, and uh, remembered. I'm so sorry. I, I was laughing extremely loudly. So, yeah, it was a broke the Joel story about his, his un underage flight booking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, you guys should have you should have slung a hundred quid at it back in 2011. Mm. Yes, you'd be on an island somewhere by now. If only, if only. It's but uh, but anyway, I, I keep on saying you know the price is the least interesting thing about Bitcoin. It's not it's not about the price. Um, so yeah, and anyway, as we know, price price jumped back up after after twenty fourteen. So the Winklevoss twins were thankfully okay. Uh, <laughs> and <laughs> I didn't actually start getting involved in it until about twenty fifteen. Um, so I'd always been a bit of a geek, and I was a gamer. I used to build. Uh, gaming computers, and I I just built this enormous water-cooled monster of a gaming computer. And I thought, oh, you know, I've been curious about Bitcoin for a while, poking around the edges, reading about it. Uh, I'm going to try mining it. And obviously, <laughs> again, I was an idiot. By 2015, GPU mining was <laughs> had been impossible for too well, exactly. <laughs> uh, so that didn't work either. Uh, but I did get curious enough to start running a node. Um, um, downloaded the full blockchain, and I realized the other day I started running a node before I bought any Bitcoin, which oh, right. I imagine must be quite rare now. Uh, now that not not that we don't want mass market adoption, which we do, but um, it was an interesting way of way of approaching. Was, was that was that more because you was interested in like the the, the geeky tech type um, side of it rather than the actual um, monetary side of it? Yeah. Uh, I, I just thought it was a fascinating idea, and I didn't. Mm. I mean, one of my big regrets is that I wasn't. I, I never learned how to code. I, 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 you know, I was a classicist. I read classics at university, Latin and Greek, and I think in a, in another universe, I would have really enjoyed doing computer science rather than humanities. But mm. but it's too late now. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. But you know, I, I, I enjoy tinkering. I imagine Latin and uh, stuff is essentially a, a different way of decoding things in a way, isn't it? It's yeah, it's a good point. It's and people often say when you're constructing a Latin sentence, it's, it's very much like creating a piece of code or a piece of logic. Mm. Um, if, you, if you've done any Latin, it, it, it's, it's extraordinarily beautiful in the way that the sentences are put together and the, the way that you build up a piece of Latin prose or poetry is is very similar in, in some ways to. You know, to creating an if-then logic structure, mm, mm. so there's probably things about Latin that appeal to that would appeal to people who can write code as well. Um, 
Yeah, but uh, yeah, so I ran, I ran that node for a while, and I thought, okay, well, I'm finally going to put my money where my mouth is. I'm going to buy something. I had a great plan. It was going to. It was 2015, so I don't know if you remember the, the price was like flat for like two years, and it came down off the Mt. Gox, and then it was. So I thought I'm going to put. I'm going to buy one Bitcoin a month every month for a year because the price was like 150 quid back then, and then I forgot about that as well. <laughs> I've only been speaking for five or ten minutes, and I realised that I've just highlighted three instances when I, where I was a complete idiot. So perhaps people shouldn't take my policy. <laughs> we've all we've all taken those wrong turns down that rabbit hole. We really have. <laughs> yes, yeah, dark, dark, isn't it? Um, yeah. So I, I I started dabbling, forgot about it for a couple of years, and then kind of really returned to it when during the block size wars, when obviously the, the all of the Bitcoin media was going nuts. That was when I really began to pay attention, try to understand what was happening before me, what was going to happen to Bitcoin on my, that was on my node, and how to deal with it. How, how was it going to be safe? So um, Aaron Van Reardon at the time, he put out a great explainer, and that, that was my first interaction with Bitcoin, between him to say thank you to but for, for reassuring the community as to what, what to do, because I had absolutely no idea at all what, what to do and how to cope. Um, and uh, after that, I didn't don't think I met my first real-life Bitcoin until 2019, so spent quite a long time. I don't know if you guys found the same when you first got involved. I, I spent a long time on my own, not knowing anyone in the community, and let alone meeting anyone in real life. When did, was that similar for you guys? Or For me... Um... When I started actually putting my money where my mouth was, it was initially just making um, a blind bet on on Bitcoin and a few of the other shit coins as well, uh, and not really sort of investing the time I should have to to understand where I was putting my money. But I think uh, once once I thought you know I really need to sort of learn a little bit more about where my money's going, I started switching to things like YouTube podcasts and things like that. Um, I was even listening at one stage to bloody what's his name, Bitboy, and stuff like that. And I, was, <laughs> I, I was in, I, I was in danger of falling down a very dark hole. Um, but yeah. when, but I got rescued by a few of the um, podcasts, the likes of Preston Pish uh, and and a few others, um, where there was a few points that they made about the difference between crypto and Bitcoin. Where I was like, okay. It sparked my curiosity enough as to understand why that might be, and then that's when the um, the lifeline came for me to crawl out that hole and just go into the Bitcoin rabbit hole instead. I don't know what it was like for you, Joel. Um, I was just thinking. Funnily enough, I was always interested in Bitcoin because I used it for uh, four years just to, to pay friends, um, buy some stuff online. You know, like essentially growing up in like switzerland it's not like in the uk where you can get your um bank account when you're like 16 be be more or less on your own if you want to with like all the neo banks and stuff like you still pretty much condensed to your parents or like some guardian or whatever um so i use it as a payment rail but i then when i started freelancing took on you know crypto projects because i thought like hey bitcoin is interesting but like cryptos as well and um I got paid in a couple of tokens, like I got introduced to stable coins and these things, but they were never interesting enough for me to 
to like keep investing in them or something like this. Um, and I remember living in the village where um, the Ethereum Foundation was founded. And this was sort of my first hint where I went, hmm, like how can something be claimed to be decentralized and then like 12 weird programming looking dudes um, with way too many parties at their homes usually um, talk about the finance future or like at the compute of the world, I think was the topic. And like the whole sin city was in on it. Like everyone, I, I remember the, um, maybe it was the butcher or it was the uh, bakery, but one of those had a shit ton of ETH from the pre-sale and like they dumped it when it hit 30 bucks or something be before like the DAO hack or whatever. <laughs> so, you know, I sort of saw this and I went, well, that kind of sounds like insider trading. And like with Bitcoin, this wasn't possible because you had to work for it, right? So I always would, if I get paid by these crypto projects, eventually turn it into Bitcoin um, or just convert it to fiat and, and basically pay the bills. <laughs> but um, yeah, I was never really interested in in the whole things. But like I was young. So like, you know, if I were able to buy my yeah. stuff, I was happy. The have to work for it point is crucially important. And that's certainly mm -hmm. something that I think come, comes to you slowly. Um, I, I've been, I'm sure this is common for a lot of Bitcoiners, but I, I went through endless cycles of feeling terribly worried about the environmental impact of Bitcoin mm -hmm. and why does it burn so much electricity and would it ever transition to proof of stake without, I think, connecting the dots and then understanding that money is too important for someone to be able to create arbitrarily out of thin air and actually the fact that you need to work for Bitcoin and the, need, the, the fact that there is a cost to its production, which makes the, the time chain completely unforgeable and impenetrable is absolutely a feature and is in some ways the most important feature of all. Mm. It means that no one can attack it, that no one can corrupt the ledger, that no one can change the order of transactions. And understanding that, you know, took, took me a while and, you know, I've been tinkering around the edges of this for a decade now, and it took me a long time to understand. I think knowing how long it took me to understand it helps to remind me that we can't expect people who are new to the space to get this instantaneously. Yes. It's hard often when I, I talk to, to pre-coiners to get them to understand this because most people you know, in, in fairness, and why, why would most people know or care how money is created and how it is manipulated and, just, and destroyed? It's it's not something that you necessarily want to spend much time thinking about. And why should you? And, and I mean, you said it before, Freddie, you worked um, like in the past now, um, also in, you know, the fintech space and the finance space, like even people working in that field don't give a shit, honestly, how money is created. The only thing they care about is how do we get it for free, essentially, and how can we make a yield on it? That's all they want to do. Oh, yeah, yeah, very, very much so. In fact, I think if, I mean, from, from my own personal experience, you know, and probably should say here, you know, I worked in the city for 12 years and I've worked in fintech and startups for four or five now. Mm. So a reasonably lengthy career. I completely understands why people in the TradFi world don't give a shit about it mm. because they're doing very well with the current system. Mm. And I mean, I mentioned earlier, I didn't meet my first IRL Bitcoin until like, until like 2019. I spent most of the previous uh, five or six years being relentlessly abused by my friends for being interested in this weird internet money. That was a scam. 
was tulips or was going to zero. I've got WhatsApp chats going back to like, I think my fir- the first time I, uh, I I was abused about it was like summer 2016 mm-hmm. with some of my mates. You know, we, we try and meet up at least once a year and they're all economists f- from university and <laughs> right. now we're now working banks. And they're like, why are you interested in this weird bullshit thing? It's going to go to zero. Um, and then occasionally, you know, when when the hype cycle happens and the price spikes, you get texts saying, oh, you know, how's your Bitcoin doing? And some, <laughs> have you sold? Well, no, obviously I haven't sold. I don't want more fears. Mm. Also, you know, the, 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 there's all kinds of capital gains tax issues you, you're going to get into there. Um, so no, obviously no one, no one ever sells. And, and also you point out that if I had had any Bitcoin, I almost certainly would have lost it in an unfortunate maritime related accident. <laughs> so I don't know what you're talking about. Anyway. Um, so, <laughs> but I mean, on, on the more serious point, it, I, I do feel some sympathy for people who work in the TradFi world mm-hmm. because there's no need for them to know about it and their system is working perfectly well for them, you know. A lot, a lot of my friends have, have done very well for themselves and own multiple houses and send their children to very expensive schools. So they deal that without Bitcoin. Why do they care? Yeah, that's a very good point. If it's not broken for them, why would they even bother even wrapping their head around something as complicated as, as Bitcoin? When the easiest thing to do really is just to default to the the FUD that you might have uh, read one day in the New York Times or something. Uh, yeah. I, th- I think I think the you're right in the sense that it was the same for me, Freddie, with the whole environmental side of things. It took me, I think, one of the sticking points for me was okay, it's perfect, but it's it's it, the enormous amount of energy it uses and the environment Im- impact of that, and that was really one of the bigger hurdles for me to to sort of wrap my head around. Um, but the, when when that veil drops and then you see the um, you know how how the world operates in, in relation to energy and how the impact of the environment is in relation to that, um, I think that's a difficult one for for well, personally for me to overcome, and I'm sure uh, a lot of other people. And I, this is I think where you're um, going to be facing quite a lot of difficulties. You know, being in the Bitcoin Institute um, is is people will not get it uh, and and we it's, it's it's trying to articulate in a way um where people can get it as uh, as quick as possible uh without actually losing the value of the message i don't know if that is something that you're you're sort of grappling with yourself ready yeah very true I, I you know some of this i think boils down to to sound bites you know right. bitcoin is a zero emissions industry not a single atom of carbon dioxide has ever been emitted by a bitcoin miner full stop the carbon emissions come from electricity generation. And I think I'd, I'd make two points there. Firstly, no one needs to, no, no, no one in any other sphere is required to justify energy consumption. We don't, we don't say that people are not allowed to turn on their lights at home. We use tumble dryers or light up the Christmas lights. You know, if you've paid for your energy, you should be able to use it full stop if you live in a free society. And then I think that the second leap is is what we're seeing happening in, in the industry now with voices like Margaret Pires and Troy Cross and Daniel Batten. It's it's a leap beyond just just getting to the point where you say this use of energy is good because it secures this global monetary network that is free and available for everyone to use and join. You then take a second leap, which is I think even harder for some people to take, which is that the, oh, this industry can actually has certain characteristics that make it an extraordinarily good participant in 
to build out of a renewable and sustainable grid or in burning methane from you know, old oil fields or old coal plants or from landfill gas. So this is an industry that has a capability to become carbon negative and not because people have any particular ideology. It's simply down to self-interest. You know, it is in the commercial interest of Bitcoin miners to find the cheapest available energy. And that is often energy that no one else wants to use. Oh, hey, presto, we're sucking up lots of methane that was otherwise going to the atmosphere. And methane, as we know, is 80 times worse than carbon dioxide as a greenhouse gas. And this doesn't require you to be a good person. You can be the biggest bastard in the world. And you can want to make as much money as you want from mining. And you just happen. It's, it's like an, I, was, I was on a call this morning. We, we were talking about the emergent properties of Bitcoin mining as an industry. One of the emergent properties is that you can accidentally become carbon negative by being a bastard. <laughs> I mean, I, I absolutely love that. <laughs> Imagine that's, explaining that's this to a Labour Party member, but um, that's a whole different discussion. Well, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's hard isn't it but I, well, my, mate I try and explain some, I try and explain to my wife who wishes I would stop talking about Bitcoin and for, for, oh you too yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's, it's so bad isn't it but that, there are two really big leaps there. leap one is understanding it's not necessarily a bad use of energy and then leap two is oh my god this is actually the best possible use of energy in these contexts and in this way because of the incidental benefits that it has. Do, do you think, so we established before, Freddie, that you have an interest in like tinkering, trying to find stuff out. Do you think your uprising in Africa is also a big influence in this? Because you've, you've, you've been around the world. Yeah, so um, just as context, I, I, grew, I sort of grew up. My uh, I grew up in the Middle East and Southern Africa. My my dad was in the British Council, which, I, if people don't know, they were sort of like the cultural wing of the of the British presence abroad. Not quite like the embassy, but affiliated with them. So I lived in Syria as a very young kid, left just before I was seven, and uh, then moved to Zimbabwe when I was eight, and spent most of my childhood there. And I think. That's a really good point to raise, Joel, both from, I think, the tinkering point of view and also maybe understand there's a bit of overlap with understanding how collapsing currencies affect, affect you. And harking back to my economist friends that I was at university with, I think one of the reasons it was potentially easier for me to understand Bitcoin than it would be for them is because I had actually lived through um, and, you know, not, not to say that this was a better or worse experience than theirs, but I had lived through societies with collapsing money and capital controls. And um, I, I say this quite a lot, but, you know, if, if I have to explain Bitcoin to you, you probably don't need it yet. People who need it understand it. And if you don't understand it, that's no judgment on you. It's probably simply that you just haven't had a need for it yet. Um, and I'm... The tinkering in Zimbabwe, I think, is a really good point. If you talk to any Zimbabwean, you, 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 at some point, you, you'll probably hear them say, don't worry, we'll make a plan. It's, I think it might originally have been a South African saying, but Zimbabweans are always very keen on making, making a plan. And growing up in a country like that, and it's suffering a, a lot more than it used to now, people are having to sink boreholes in their gardens. They, they're having to stockpile diesel at home. 
know, the in, even in South Africa, the electricity grid is is collapsing to the point where yeah, there are rolling blackouts because the grid can't can't cope anymore. You know, South Africa is a much richer country than Zimbabwe. Um, Zim shouldn't be suffering those those, those kind of those that, those kind of economic collapse. But I think for people who grew up in Zimbabwe or people in Argentina right now, or people in the Lebanon, or people in Nigeria, if your currency is devaluing, you know, if if you're losing 70, 80% against the US dollar every year, then Bitcoin makes perfect sense. You can you can put money into something that, you know, yes, it's wildly, the, the fluctuations are crazy, but if your currency year on year loses 70%, then it makes a lot more sense. And I was just about to say, I mean, if the media does something very well, um, they always focus on the downturns of Bitcoin, which happen every four years, just to be like to um, keep my media friends in check. <laughs> um, and if you compare that, 70% drawdown <laughs> compared to, like you said, 80, 90. I mean, um, we, we heard Anita Posh last week in Prague where she spoke about a 400% inflation in what was it, Ian? Two or three years, something like this? Three years, yeah. Three years. This is immense. To them, Bitcoin is peanuts and it is actually mm. saving even in a bear market. So just to put that in perspective, if you actually experience this real time, um, you sort of see how innovative people are. Because I guess, how did you manage to preserve uh, your, your family savings? Or do you remember um, when you were living in these times? Yeah, so for some of the time we were there, my, my dad was earning in sterling. So, and I think that that exemplifies a lot of the drive from countries like Zim. So there, there's always a, a, a among among people there. If it's at all possible for you to get hard currency, you try and get hard currency. So there, we went through various periods of usage of the U.S. dollar, and obviously my dad being paid in sterling, converting to converting to Zim dollars was very helpful. But he retired in 1989, and then we we spent the rest of the time we lived in Zim with my dad earning local currency. And that was a that was a big sea change in the family. So, and it was I, I remember how noticeable it was. We suddenly felt very poor. You know, he had been earning sterling up till eighty nine, and then suddenly, bam, he's he's earning some dollars. And we it was hard to get hold of hard currency. And you know, everyone may want sterling or dollars. No one wants no one wants him dollars. Um, and that becomes a running theme when you know when people leave the country or. Um, when 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 people try to get their money out, when when they finally leave, um, and I think this is again to return to the Bitcoin point. Hard money drives out soft. People people want to get hold of something that is. It, it may be devaluing. Yes, we know the US dollar is not immune to devaluation, but it's not devaluing at eighty ninety percent a year. Um, and I think we're, we I saw that in real time with people trying to get hold of hard currency in Zim. And I think everyone in the, in countries experiencing the same kind of monetary devaluation is seeing the same thing now, but with Bitcoin. You know, we we, we know the the monetary premium that was uh, put upon Bitcoin recently in Nigeria. I think wasn't it trading at you know twenty thirty percent premium? I don't quote me on that. My figures are likely to be wrong. But I remember there was an enormous premium in it last year. I think at times even forty five percent or something. Really? Yeah. Wow. But to to be honest, we had Mary from Nigeria on and she explained to us that a part of it was um, sort of black market forces against a very cash heavy society. So 
the cash people were trying to prevent people from right. getting cash and the black force uh, black market yeah. forces went well there's a premium on that so that huge gap opened up but yeah crazy like you had to pay almost 50 percent more <laughs> just 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 to get a trade done because you're trying to buy the cash got it um and then you the capital controls point you you probably heard my my silly story about getting our cash out we um <laughs> we uh yeah you, you know the story we uh so we, we sold our house. We were, we were planning to come back to the UK to go to university. I was the eldest of four children. My brother's 10 years younger than me. And uh, so we, we sold our house. And then we did what a lot of Zimbos do. You you buy a big car and you drive it across the border. So we, we bought this 1976 Rolls-Royce Silver Shadow, absolutely gorgeous piece of machinery, and drove it out through South Africa and drove two and a half thousand miles to Cape Town. Uh, fantastic, fantastic journey across the Drakensberg, down the garden route, through the World War battlefields, the Zulu battlefields, Isandwana, Rob's Drift, um, down to down to Cape Town, put it on a boat, and then sailed up to the UK. <laughs> awesome. That's, that's, that's great. <laughs> I was just thinking of the time when you were talking about um, your dad um, converting from being paid in sterling into uh, the local currency. The, and did you did you get a sense of injustice about uh, that at all? Uh, like when when things started to the impact of of that, you started to feel when that happened. Was that sort of like the motivation for you to sort of try to get into um, lobbying and and into um, things like policy and things like that? Was there any motivation there behind that? I think yeah, I think you probably highlights quite an important point there, Ian. I've I've always been really upset by unfairness mm. and i think this is something that you mentioned nita posh this is something she highlights so well bitcoin is one of the wonderful things about it is that it's it's a fair system and you know when when we're kids we're all we're all upset by unfairness one of the first things you get shouted out by your children is you know it's not fair it's not fair yeah but sometimes we get older we we tend to lose that and i th- I think that actually this is a great point here. This this is probably where the, the two the two interests kind of melt. Um one of the reasons I, I love Bitcoin so much is because I, I feel it is it is fair in a way that the existing financial system is not. It's very, very easy if you sound like me and went to the same university as me and have the same kind of professional background to go into the system which which, which stacks the cards hugely in your favor and you can go and work at goldman sachs and jp morgan and those are respectable careers to have you know i goldman sachs was a client of of mine for a long time i did a lot of very interesting work for them and actually a lot of the most brilliant people i ever worked with were at goldman sachs and you know that's but the system in which that operates is is not a fair one and particularly in terms of how easy it is for money to be created at either at central bank level or by commercial banks and then to be i mean the the private equity um private equity and venture capital market by way of example um i, I don't know how much time i've got to, to delve into it so please please stick two fingers up and maybe allow me to shut no, up no no go for it um, <laughs> um the the entire model of 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 private equity and you know i've worked in this this industry for a long time is when you think about it slightly monstrous you you have very very good companies let's say working peter express is an example i open news 
So Peter Express was a good business and has been going for a long time, was acquired by private equity, I think about 2006, 2007. And if, if your listeners are familiar, the way, the way a private equity fund works is um, a fund will be set up and will go out and raise money from what are, what are called the LPs. So those are investors who are you know, often insurance funds, pension funds, ultra high net worth individuals. And a fund, let's, let's, let's call it PE fund one, will be created. They will raise a certain amount of money. And then the managers of the fund need to go out and deploy that capital. So they need to go and find targets to invest. And the way private equity worked in 2006, 2007 was that uh, the PE fund would, would come in and they'd buy a business like Peter Express with you know, roughly using 10% of their own fund money and like 90% of money from a bank. So the lending bank would essentially create that, that loan money and that would be lent to the special purpose vehicle, which would then buy Peter Express back in the day. It was called Gondola. So that, that was the SPV that bought um, Peter Express. And then the great thing about that structure was that the firstly, the PE fund only put in like 10% of the, of the equity strip, 90% of it was newly created money created by a lending bank. And it was secured against the assets of the group. So that, the security was was Peter Express, which is the business that you bought. And the reason Peter Express has been in trouble again and again and again across the intervening period, and this is all available online, if you if you care to read about it, is because the debt burden servicing that debt is absolutely enormous mm. and eats up almost all of Peter Express's profits. Uh, but it's great for the private equity company because in in five to three to five years' time, they sell it off either to a trade buyer or via IPO, and they make absolute bank because you know they only put in ten percent of the equity. Um, and they make a gigantic return on that that small money, small amount, small strip of equity that they put in. Peter Express, the, the group itself, is still burdened with that enormous debt burden. And they haven't been able to make any freaking profits. Mm -hmm. So, I, I mean, the, 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 whole, the whole financial engineering industry seems, you know, I, I probably shouldn't say this on a podcast because I'm, I, it means I'm unlikely to work in that industry again. But, you know, it's, it's pretty monstrous. And I, I think in summary, you, you've got an entire industry that, that relies upon putting in money to very, very, what work very, very good businesses, and then essentially overburdening them with enormous amounts of debt that they will never be able to pay off, which is kind of a metaphor for our entire economy. Yeah, the term, the term house, the house always wins comes to mind right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you said it much more succinctly than I did. It took, took me about 10 minutes to say that. And I can sense the frustration in your voice as well, um, the injustice um, of it all. And is this is this why you're now sort of um, driving the Bitcoin Policy Institute to try to sort of um, put signal out there about Bitcoin and, and sort of integrate that into a, an unjust system somehow? I think, yeah, fundamentally, that that's why. I mean, I, I feel that, being involved in Bitcoin is is the way I can I can do the most good for the most number of people in the shortest amount of time. And it sounds silly if you come at that statement cold, but if you understand why um, our current financial system is so broken and so heavily stacked in as you say in, in favor of the house, Bitcoin is is not just is not just a reinvention of 
you know, it's just not massaging the existing system. It's a completely new system in its own right. And, you know, coming back to an each point, it, it's fair. The protocol treats everyone the same. It doesn't matter if you're a billionaire. It doesn't matter if you're, if you're just buying your first Satoshi. It treats you exactly the same. And the protocol doesn't care. When you, when you broadcast a transaction, it doesn't care how much you're sending, where you're sending it to, or what your purposes are. And I think the other thing that appeals to me about it so much is that no matter how much Bitcoin you have, you can't change the rules. And that, that's just game changing for me. And I guess what's amazing is obviously everyone has different experiences. So, you know, me growing up in Switzerland, I was always under the impression, you know, democracy is sort of a, a birth given right. Um, we do live in a democracy and like um, these, these, these people at the top surely do the best in our interest. And just through living in that period, you sort of realize, well, at times there's not much of a difference between the UK and Zimbabwe, probably. Like, yeah, one country is maybe more fucked in terms of uh, the standard of their currency and all of these things. But at the end of the day, this whole democracy thing that we've been sold, in theory, it works, but we don't have the tools to protect ourselves. And here comes this invention, discovery, whatever you want to call it, in 08, 09, where a guy literally, or a group, I think, everyone has their different opinion who Satoshi is, sat down and went like, right, let's combine all of the last 60 years with like cryptology knowledge, what money is, what sound money is, the Austrian school of economics, and all of these principles into one thing. And to actually get this thing, guess what? You have to put work in. It's not just that you can hit the button or, or turn on the machine and print it. And I think if you look at it from that perspective, that's amazing. And if you then go a step further to get into the CBDC discussion, at the end of the day, in the current financial system, if they really want to fuck you over, they can, they can shut down your bank account. They can shut down access to the whole system. Just look at whether you're in favor or not of the whole Russia-Ukraine thing. Um, they basically cut people off in Russia who probably were not interested in a war or whatever was going on um, just because they had that passport or that virtual line on the card that existed somewhere. And with Bitcoin, yes, in theory, centralized exchanges, nation states can blacklist a, an address but guess what? The protocol doesn't give a shit. So it's not just fuck you money. Yeah. <laughs> it literally is fuck you technology to say, if you play by the rules, you can do whatever the, whatever you want. I don't want to drop another F-bomb. <laughs> <laughs> don't worry. I, I have steel ears. <laughs> um, no, but no, I completely agree. And, you know, obviously the a good deal of my spare time at the moment is spent on doing doing policy work with uh, Bitcoin Policy UK. Um, so, I mean, some of your listeners may, may be aware of some of the stuff that we've done done so far. So we've been feeding as much as we can into the various consultations that are ongoing to the Treasury, to the FCA, to the Bank of England, uh, to Parliament as well. Um, and with, with a degree of sympathy, because these... Politicians and regulators at the moment, they are starting from a very, very low point of understanding. Uh, initially, a lot of people will think this is just bullshit. Why should I care? Why is this important? Um, and then you go through the period of thinking, oh, this is all crypto. And, you know, I, we, were, we were probably all there ourselves. Ian, I know you, you, you've already mentioned you were. I was really interested in 2017 by the idea of Ethereum and the world computer. Um, 
Silicon Valley, you know the show Silicon Valley? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I, I thought there were a lot of echoes of what Ethereum might have done in a different universe there. We want this decentralized world computer that no one can control, that you can run anything on. I've not heard much about that narrative recently. Is that that may have died? I don't know. Maybe that's not a lot thing. I haven't heard of it. I, I, I tend to... Didn't I didn't look back. <laughs> <laughs> um and you know, I went I went through it took me quite a long time to understand why all other cryptocurrencies were pointless, at least from the perspective of what I was interested in, which is fixing money. I think Bitcoin has of, of everything of, of everything that exists in this sphere, Bitcoin has got the best chance of replace of you know of separating money and state. Can could Ethereum become a uh, a completely neutral non-state money? Absolutely not, because it's we 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 would know where it's run. We 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 know who controls it, and I think it's proof of stake because you just shot yourself in the freaking foot. And it's it's not ju- it's not just a proof of stake thing. It's not the foundation with the current SEC charges. There have been emails popping up where like, hey. Let's ask this guy responsible for this decentralized network. Um, yeah. And you always have that influence. Yeah. <laughs> Ultrasound money, right? Like burn 0.11% yeah. of your unknowingly ever increasing money supply. Um, I call it ultrasound money. Um, but the, the main thing for me is they've been captured by, by the big banks. You do know, if if you read like Laura Shint's book, or also if you go back way into the history of Ethereum, JP Morgan, Morgan Stanley, they were sort of involved there. Um, There is a reason why Ethereum is sort of very close with um, institutions like Consensus and these ones, because they're the ones providing software to banks for private blockchains, which essentially are just a bit more modern version of a database, but they control what happens on that database. And they call it blockchain because it's hip and sound and probably couple of LPs will invest into it. Um, and I think if you look at it from that perspective, we're like, yes, this looks very nice, very organized, you know, big banks behind it that always builds trust for, for normal people. And you sort of have the lunatics who essentially wear the same underwear for two weeks <laughs> to buy more sense. But obviously, there will be quite a big discrepancy there. Um, but if you would have to put money on something that works and that enables everyone, I think the lunatics with the same underwear are probably your best shot. Completely right. I want my network to be able to survive a state-level attack, full stop. And if it can't, then it doesn't deserve to survive. And so far, Bitcoin has. Um, you know, I know I'm a realist. If if Bitcoin can be stopped, then it doesn't deserve to survive. It must be unstoppable. And uh, this is why you know I, I enjoy hearing about potential weaknesses and, and and criticisms of it. And it was one of the things, one of the reasons I found that the recent ordinal kerfuffle so interesting yeah. was yeah. I I thought yeah you you have you had Udi's attempts at breaking Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, Bitcoin didn't break; it kept working. It did, yeah. And and also that actually gave me some hope about what happens after twenty one forty because you know the security budget question is something that I thought was a genuine attack vector. Um, but I mean. God knows what's going to happen in 2040. I don't know if we'll, we'll survive that. <laughs> Probably not. Um, but our kids and grandkids or whatever will. And I think what the best case scenario was with Ordinals is the system worked as it intended to be. 
Miners were able to pick up fees, which they were not for a long time now at the bear market. Obviously, they're going to promote ordinals because like, that's how they're going to keep paying the bills and keep expanding their operation. And on the other end of things, yes, you did have maybe higher fees on the main chain. But like, guess what? We do have layer solutions now. And I bet we'll see probably third layers, um, different layer twos other than the Lightning Network, just to counteract this thing. And um, I don't know if you've seen it, Freddie. I can then for sure link it in the show notes and send it to you later. Giacomo Zucco did a great talk about um, why ordinals are retarded. I think that was the title. And he sort of highlighted... I'll send it to you later on. It's really cool. It's a funny talk because Giacomo just does an amazing stuff. Yeah. Um, and he he showed like the idea behind ordinals is is not something new. It already existed, mm-hmm. and it's not like Taproot and and Segwit for that matter broke Bitcoin. It's just an improvement to the software, and the masses will decide where we're gonna go. And guess what? For now, some of them like ordinals. Happy if they pick it up. Um, TikTok next block. It still works. So like it's not that it breaks. Um, and I think looking from the outside in. If I were to work at the Bank of England, for example, and I get contacted by BPUK and I sort of have to look at this thing like, hang on a minute, like there are people trying to break your stuff. It still works. It is energy wasteful, let's call it, um, at least in their eyes. But somehow you manage to get it going and you now want to like go up against us, we who sort of have uh, control over everything in the system. And I think it is hard for them to understand why a CBDC is potentially so dangerous and um, why Bitcoin um, isn't to be treated as a currency or, or as something stable, because again, they profited from the system and inevitably they will profit if they adopt the CBD standard in the future as well. Mm. Well, maybe spending a couple of minutes on CBDCs, if, I'm, if I may. Yeah, please. Um, I think... Historically, a lot of the current central bank kerfuffle around CBDCs is actually because the central banks are all fighting the last war. So if you remember when Facebook came out with its Libra DM proposals, the uh, central banks all shit their pants because Facebook is starting from a massive first move advantage of God knows how many billion users. And central banks suddenly realize, oh shit, if these guys bring out a, a coin, they will be able to completely disintermediate us. So ironically, although a lot of us Bitcoiners are very agitated by central bank actions, it stems largely from the Facebook idiocy from two or three years ago. So what we're seeing them doing now is really a reaction to what was happening in 17, 18, 19, and is now completely out of date. So if you if you want to go and read the the Bank of England's proposals for the CBDCs, they're they're extraordinarily Extremely confused in some ways. The the House of Lords own committee report, which we re- we reference in in our response to the Bank of England, comes out quite strongly against them and says, you know, we think they're a solution in search of a problem. In the UK, at least, banking works relatively well. Most of our money is already electronic. We don't see a use case for a CBDC that isn't already perfectly perfectly well met by our existing banking system. It's it's daft. Sorry, uh, just to add on your point, like I read about a leaked, um, like I, I look at this a bit um, as a former journalist, a bit like, okay, leaked, like you got a source at like the ECB or whatever, um, probably paid someone off with a hooker. Um, they had a leaked document from the ECB stating that the um, 
CBDC Euro version, essentially, will also be offline spendable. And I kind of went like, hang on a minute. Like, we could do this a few different ways. Like, we can issue bonds. You can then redeem these bonds in, in shops if you want to. Um, physical coins, like, and, and to be honest, if they think about crypto tokens, it would be so, it would fit perfectly if they would actually issue tokens for that as well. Um or the last thing was like, you know, you'll get a bank account with the central bank directly and you get like a debit card and basically your CBDCs are on there as well. But then I went like, so they want to do a digital thing and they want to keep still keep it offline. How is that any different to what we currently face other than the bank, the central bank can essentially get around commercial banks and just dictate our everyday lives? Um so do you think this uncertainty and this not knowing is really because initially they still have the information and research based on 2017, 2018, or do these people really not know how modern financial tools work essentially and think that this is the solution? I think probably more for, and you have to, I think you also again have to recognize that we're dealing with people who think they ha suddenly have to produce a digital asset because someone else is doing it, not because they've got a good idea or they've got a problem they want to solve. I've, I've, you know, we said this in our evidence. It's, I think a lot of this is based on a misunderstanding. And to, you know, to the extent the CBDCs are a pushback against Bitcoin, they represent a misunderstanding that, oh, people like Bitcoin because it's digital. That is not why people like Bitcoin. Almost no one that you speak to who is a Bitcoiner will say that. People like Bitcoin because it cannot be debased or diluted or confiscated by a central bank. They like Bitcoin because if I want to send you, Ian, some Bitcoin or you, Joel, I can do it now. And no one, not even God himself, can stop me. They, you know, it, it, however, if I'm using a CBDC and I have said something politically offensive or that the regime of the day deems inappropriate, it's very, very easy of them to turn off my access to finance. And I return a lot to the idea that the freedom to transact is, is what actually one of the most fundamental freedoms, although it's not obvious. People, people think of human rights and they think, you know, the right to free speech or the right, you know, to, to practice whatever religion you want or, or to not, not to live in fear that your sexuality or gender identity will, will be used against you politically. But the, the freedom to transact is actually just as fundamental as any of these things. You know, if you were to go out and you were trying to buy food or water or shelter and your bank card wasn't working, you're fucking homeless. Um, have, you, have you ever read um, Neverwhere, Neil Gaiman's book about London Below? Yes. Yeah. yeah. I haven't, uh, no. But oh, I, I love, oh, I love Neil Gaiman, so uh, thank oh, you for dude. the recommendation. Oh, if you, if you like Gaiman, you'll yeah, love I, it. I love, I love it, yeah. yeah. It's one of his early ones. I think he, he wrote in the 80s, I think, originally as a, maybe as a radio script, actually, or maybe TV. Mm. Um, I mean, I won't spoil the story for you, but right at the, there's, he's got this concept of London above, which is where we, you know, we live, and London below, which right. is where the people go when they fall through the cracks. And it, it's like this, this magical world underneath London where there really is an angel called Islington. And there are, there are terrifying black friars, and there's a massive guy with a hammer called Hammersmith. Um, anyway, it's very, very cool. You must totally read it. Most definitely. Um, Thank you. At the, be at the beginning of it, there's, there's a guy who falls through the cracks. There's a guy called, called Richard, the, the main character. And he suddenly finds that his key doesn't work in his door and his bank card doesn't work and that he becomes invisible. He's effectively unpersoned. 
And right. that I think is, if, if you zero in on it, that, that's why I feel CBDCs have such dangerous potential because they give the central bank and the government the ability to unperson you. And if your bank account doesn't work and if you can't pay your phone bill or your heating bill or your water bill, you're on the home, you're homeless on the streets. You're totally fucked. And the cost to the government of fucking you is extremely low. Yeah. Whereas if you have Bitcoin, the cost to the government of fucking you is, you know, God knows how many extra hashes <laughs> of, uh, of actual work. Yeah. What, with in terms of CBDCs, is it a realistic fear that they could lock us out on the on and off ramps to to buying Bitcoin? Is that a reasonable fear? I think it's a sensible fear. Um, but at the same at the same time, if you have some Bitcoin and I have some CBDC and I want to exchange it, then how do they stop that? Yeah. Provided that the CBDC is exchangeable peer to peer, then. I don't think that they, they can make it more difficult, but they can't stop it. And as mm. we know, black markets exist in every single country in the world yeah. for every single commodity. Rules never, they, they never completely kill an industry. They will make, they could make it more difficult, but I'm hoping that by the time CBDCs become sufficiently entrenched, Bitcoin will be so sufficient, so similarly entrenched in our energy infrastructure and in our general commercial day-to-day -day transactions that it won't matter. Yeah, and you know, if you know, if we live in a world where every single wind farm is co-located with a Bitcoin miner and to act as demand response and a battery to to accommodate power that isn't required for the demand response, then you know, it it, it just becomes boring. It's part of mm. our part of the infrastructure. And and I guess to me personally, it's not only the whole I mean, the whole big if is like, can the government build a digital native experience to, you know, basically get well whatever, like five billion people on board if we leave out sort of um the unbanked and all of the maybe less remote areas who have don't have good internet access and even then like does it work constantly does it integrate with all of the different currencies so there's a big if but for me personally looking at history you know whenever an empire failed it didn't fail because inevitably uh, there was an uprising or like look at the French Revolution, for example. Yeah, they beheaded their king. And guess what? 15 years later, they had another dictator sending them into wars every like two weeks, essentially. Um, so it's not really the uprising <laughs> by the, the plebs, if you want to call it so. But it's really the fact that history hasn't been kind to people who play God. And if you try and manipulate money, which is the purest form of good we need in everyday life. I needed to pay for my coffee, my bills, essentially everything. If you want to take that away, I guess at one point people will find an avenue. And we already see it with statements by, you know, Christine Lagarde, who says if there is another alternative to the current rails, they will use it. And it's like you said, Freddie, at the end of the day, black markets pop up. Um, funnily enough, if they maybe had less regulation, you wouldn't have so many black markets, right? So they kind of shoot themselves in the foot wherever they go. Um, and I guess as Bitcoin is the best thing to do is um, obviously fight against it, but be open enough and give possibilities to people who are not yet in the know what that alternative is. Because it really isn't that hard once you get these core Bitcoin principles and uh, get on board, essentially. Yeah, completely right. So much of it is about I think, people coming to it gently. 
and you know bitcoin is is not one of the lovely things about it it's not a compulsory system no one is forced to use it everyone who's using it today has chosen chosen to adopt it voluntarily for you know we all have we all have our different reasons for doing so you know some you know are you a cypherpunk are you uh do you hate modern monetary theory do you fear inflation do you currency debasement control censorship many many different reasons but it's really a fascinating period of history to live through we're, we're watching something monetize from absolute zero in real time and you know hard money drives out soft it, it's whether you know whether there's, there's no advertising budget there's no ceo there's no marketing team people it's something that people have freely chosen and it's one of the most wonderful things about the system. It forces you in a way to really take a, take a deep look at not only money, but yourself as well. And, um, and, and how the whole system is interconnected. And, um, I find it forever fascinating. And Freddie, thank you for allowing us down your Bitcoin rabbit hole and, um, showing us how you got into it. Is there anything you want to say or add, um, to the podcast before we, we, leave now um is there anything we forgot to ask you that you would like to say uh well i, mean, I think just a final thank you for me i love chatting with you guys it's a real honor to come on the podcast so thank you very much for having me on um and then to all of the listeners um you know we we're a young organization uh, bitcoin policy uk we are we're self-funded we're all volunteers so um if you would like to get involved or to follow us uh follow us on twitter um we, we'd love to have you as a follower and love to have you generate the support of the community we're very open to feedback um and we're still formulating our you know our policy responses and the way that we want to go about negotiating with with regulators with politicians and so on so any support from the community uh, would be great we are also involved in, in fundraising for um to, to have a couple of small proof concept mines so if anyone's interested um, do have a look on our website or on uh, on Giza Fund as well. Um, and uh, generally speaking, if, if you if you have opinions, get in touch. We're always we're keen to listen to them. And chaps, thanks so much for having me on. It's been a tremendous pleasure. Thank you. And we'll put all the uh, information in, uh, in the show notes to how to contact the Bitcoin Policy UK and everything uh, will be in these show notes to make it easy for everyone to find you guys. So thank you, Freddie. Thank you so much. Where's the best place to find you, Freddie? Is it Twitter or LinkedIn? Uh, <laughs> I'm probably Twitter. Um, I, I'm, I'm on LinkedIn. I don't use it that often. Uh, I'm at Freddie New uh, on Twitter. Nice. Short and simple. You're, you're about to have a new follower. <laughs> yeah <laughs> i think i follow you both already but uh oh no yeah yeah you just experience the uncomfortable thing you usually have at um conference and stuff when they go like oh i'm following you they kind of go like i do too now <laughs> yeah that that, ha that, ha that happens to me in prague yeah, yeah me too <laughs> oh take lovely. care freddie take care well look after yourselves thanks so much guys bye-bye pleasure